1: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 11th, 2020. The He is Going to Change the World edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider. And the GabFest is live before a crowd of rowdy GabFest fans. Sort of, sort of, sort of, dear ones. We wish, we so very much wish we were in a room with you, in a theater with you somewhere, and we hope... And no, we will be someday soon. In the meantime, we are live for the first time in the COVID era on YouTube and on Facebook. I'm in my basement because that is the only place I have tolerably fast internet. And I'm joined from New Haven in some book-lined nook by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. So nice to see you.
2: Hello, David. It's nice to see you too and to imagine our audience out there. Yes. I I know. Are you
1: imagining them naked?
2: No, definitely not. But maybe you are. Nope. I'm just imagining that, like, someone might be listening live, which is exciting in itself, even if they have all their clothes on.
3: Um, already, we've gone off like uh, to a total detour. <laughs> but normally, when Emily's announced, there's a huge roar. So I'm, and that's what I'm imagining is the roar of, of yep. affection for Emily.
2: Thank you. Do you, you want to do
1: the roar? Should we do it? Uh,
2: Emily no. Bath.
1: <laughs> That, that human sound effect there is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes, who is live in Manhattan, also in a book-lined nook of some sort. Hello, John.
3: Hello, David. I've, I've I decided not to be in the tent because it gets a little ripe in there.
1: <clears throat> oh, God. Uh, listeners would have loved to see the tent. Uh, what a shame. On today's GabFest, we will talk about the two weeks that have changed America. We're going to discuss the protest movement that's been born out of George Floyd's murder, the Swift change in public opinion about Black Lives Matter, the defund the police movement, and the policing reforms that may race through city councils and state governments and perhaps even Congress. Then Joe Biden has opened up a huge lead on Donald Trump in the race for the presidency. Are his poll numbers for real? What could drag Biden to defeat? And then the moment you have been waiting for, we are thrilled to introduce you to John Dickerson's new book about the American presidency the hardest job in the world. It is two and a half years in the making, or as we like to say, one hundred and thirty gap fests in the making. John is going to tell you some of the juicy bits, just enough of them to make you go out and buy it. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And we're going to be taking your questions throughout this live show. Uh, whatever platform you are on, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook, you can post it in the stream there, and we're going to take questions during each segment, and then we'll be taking more general questions at the end. We'll have a Q&A segment at the end about all the topics we didn't hit, uh, so please stay around and listen to that. Everybody is going to remember him around the world. He's going to change the world. That is how George Floyd's brother Rodney eulogized him at his funeral on Tuesday, 15 days after Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police. Floyd's death, it's clear, will change the world. It has inspired a protest movement that is galvanizing a generation of activists, that is compelling symbolic changes, policy changes, and political changes across the country, and even around the globe. It is the most important political upheaval we've had certainly since the Tea Party, perhaps since the civil rights movement. Um, So, Emily, I want to start with the fact that American political opinion Which rarely changes quickly has changed extraordinarily fast about Black Lives Matter. So, according to one poll, it's gone from forty-two to fifty-three percent supporting Black Lives Matter and thirty-one to twenty-five percent opposing Black Lives Matter in just two weeks. And that is by historic standards, that's an enormously fast shift. There's overwhelming support for the idea that police violence against blacks reflects a deeper problem in society. So, why? you think the shift has happened so rapidly?
2: You know, in all the years I've been reporting on this, I have thought that if Americans really understood what went on inside the criminal justice system, beginning with cops out on the street or in their patrol cars, that if they really had a close look, they would see how flawed it is. And they would understand why uh, a lot of black people feel like there's racial discrimination in the way they are treated by the police and at other moments in the system, because that is not just an aspect of police work in our criminal justice system. And I think that's what's happening. I think all the attention has really gotten people's um, awareness up about the things that happen every day. And when you take a really close look at it, you just see these glaring disparities over and over again. So it's like the protests are a giant reality check for a lot of us who don't have to think about this every day.
1: John, there was a really interesting column by Tom Edsel in the New York Times today, which noted some of this change in public opinion, but also noted, quoted a Democratic operative saying basically that white people support movements that require them to acknowledge racism, but then they drift away when the real work begins, that white Americans lose interest in racial justice when it starts to require them making actual sacrifices or actually changing the world. And this happened in the 60s. We've seen this in similar ways around polling, around gun control, where people are very get really strongly support uh, gun safety measures after their school shootings, but then none of these things actually come to, Fruition in law. Do you think this movement risks that same burnout or that same de- de- decathection from white people?
3: Well, I, you know, it depends on a couple of things. It depends on the strength of the protest. Those don't seem to be letting up at all. Um, It also depends on, I mean, what the numbers you were quoting, one of the ones that that struck me was um, after Michael Brown was shot, the number of people who thought there was a relationship between police, that there was a bigger problem in, in the police force was 43%. It's now at 69%. And there was an interesting split also in the post poll, which was you had a, basically the country who there was a, basically a split on the question of whether there was violence about 50 50% of the country thought there was violence in in um, in the aftermath but you had almost 80% of the country that thought the protesters were demonstrating for the right reasons or supported the fro- the protesters. So the question of violence really was separate and apart from whether people supported the reasons for which people were protesting. And the reason I bring that up is that that suggests a deeper well of support for the protests. And the protests marches themselves, and as Jamel was explaining last week, the movement has had a durability and gotten... Uh, Quite professional, and so that's not going away. And then I think the most important thing, though, is who rises to this moment to take this public moment and be uh, and push for it and sustain it and keep it. You know, we'll talk later about whether everything should be discussed through the lens of the presidency. I don't think it should, but we're about to have a presidential election, and the extent to which somebody keeps this issue in the forefront and explains it a- across the relationship with the police, but also across all of the disparities in America. That's the way this sustains.
2: Can we talk also about just the amount of work the um, organizers and movement builders have put in? Because what you're seeing is like six or seven years of learning how to message and organize and build a lot of trust within the movement and reach out to people outside it. And I think we're seeing all of that come to fruition I also wonder if in this strange way, the um, coronavirus is helping to sustain the protests in the sense that people just don't have as much going on, right? Like all of the distractions of our lives, the sports teams we were following, the other pastimes we had, they're just been, they're absent in so many ways. And so the energy of the protests, the idea that you can focus on this thing outside yourself, maybe that is actually easier right now.
1: I also think there's a way in which the, you would expect there to be a backlash against these protests. Given the, the nature of American politics, given the partisanship in American politics, you'd expect there to be a backlash. And what, by one standard, you could say, oh, there hasn't been a backlash. By the other standard, you could say, actually, there's been a backlash and it failed. The backlash was President Trump going to Lafayette Square. The backlash was the cops really cracking down in a brutal way against protesters with all this unprovoked and disproportionate violence against peaceful protesters and that backlash americans found it revulsion they were revolted by it and so that's not to say there won't be a further backlash but i do think it's it is a thing that usually stymies protests at this scale is a sense among the public as a whole oh these people need to stop they need to they're too chaotic they're too disruptive but actually the the backlash has Endeared the protest to more Americans than it has has uh, hurt them.
3: And I think the next stage for it to uh, become a, a a bigger thing will be to endure, and we'll we'll talk about this soon. I know, but to endure kind of the worst caricature of the various reform measures that will be put for, forward, you know that that will be the next um, process in this. As people say, uh, take them out of shape so that some portion of the electorate says well, I was I was with them until this. Um, and that feels right. like the space we're about to move into.
1: Well, actually, let's move into it. And Emily, let's move into it with you. So w- the phrase that has come out in the past week or so and has really taken root, but it, it has lar- longer history than just the past week is defund the police. So what I think, I think there's alarm in democratic political circles that this will be uh, a slogan that will be used against them. What does it mean both as a slogan and what does it mean as policy? And is it is it clear?
2: Okay, so case for and against, or maybe I'll start with the case against, what's making people nervous. Defund the police can be interpreted to zero out their budget line and get rid of them entirely. And that um could be the doorway to a kind of picture of lawlessness in american cities that is not good for democrats running for office and and not necessarily the vision of all the people who are talking about defund the police although some of them do see the police in those stark terms so the problem is if you have a slogan like defund the police and you don't mean zero out the budget is your are you spending a lot of time explaining what you mean in a way that's actually confusing and is there a problem with negative slogans? Right, defund the police doesn't tell you what you're supposed to fund instead. I like fund the community, not the police, or um, more than we currently fund the police, more than defund the police. But of course, like this
1: is why you're not in PR. Exactly,
2: I am not a copywriter. This is why for we never slogans.
1: let you write headlines. I know you are exactly. never allowed to write headlines for your pieces. <laughs>
2: David's now remembering how terrible I am at writing headlines. It's true. A burden I'm now relieved of. But I do think that there is something to think about in having a slogan that says what not to do as opposed to what to do. And what some of the defund the police um, advocates are really calling for is to change our funding priorities in American cities, to uh, reinvent or rethink the shape of the police, the scope of police work, to pay attention to All the times when currently a cop with a gun comes when you call 911, when it doesn't need to be a police officer with training to use a weapon, right? Uh, It could be somebody else taking your accident report or responding to a cry for help over mental illness or a problem with homelessness or even something like a domestic disturbance. Although I do think when you're talking about anything involving domestic violence, you might want to have an armed person there for backup, even if you were also looking to the government for mediation or conflict de-escalation. And so all of these kinds of really interesting questions about how we spend our money for public safety, That should be the big conversation we're having. It should be about reinvesting in communities, especially low income, urban black and brown communities that have such a fraught relationship with the police, right, that have been both over policed in terms of stop and frisk and racial targeting and harassment, but also often under policed in the sense that not enough of the police energy goes into solving homicides and other serious crimes in their neighborhood. So that's all of what we should be talking about.
3: And one other tiny thing to add is just that the way, the, which was David, what David was talking about last week, which is to put the energy in the dollars at the beginning of community behavior, not with police who are showing up at the end.
2: Yeah. And that's not some like kumbaya vision. There is like very strong research from social scientists showing that those kinds of investments in themselves decrease the number of violent crimes, especially murder. And when you think about crime prevention, it actually makes sense. Like, if you think about what pillars are available in an affluent neighborhood, it's all kinds of services that people in poor communities also want and deserve to have and tend to have less of. And so it's kind of evening out that picture that is important here.
1: I confess, like, and this is this is no—I do not confess this with any pride. I'm embarrassed— I had not really thought about the stupidity of all the occasions in which we send the police and how with a person who is homeless, with a person who's experiencing mental illness and the distress of mental illness, with a street food vendor who is operating without a license, with traffic, uh, you know, directing traffic somewhere, that there are so many of these cases that the police take on the job. It's like, a you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I... This was, has been a revelation for me. So, so I don't know whether defund the police as a slogan is a, a slogan that's a winner politically. I certainly think this reallocation of authority, this reallocation of activity, this redirection of activity is such – it's so overdue. And I hope that many other Americans, many other ignorant, dumb Americans like me are having the same realization right now because it's, it's, it's so shocking when you start to think about it.
3: Can I ask Emily a question, which is um, obviously different communities face different challenges. Um, How do you see the and is there a wise way to think about the distribution of tasks here from, you know, the mayor to the governor to the Justice Department and who plays what role? Um, Because it seems like these solutions are highly community specific. But obviously there are civil rights issues. There are community issues that border each other. How does that all how do you see that sorting?
2: So a lot of the spending decisions are and should be up to state and local governments, right? Like they're the ones who should decide how to reallocate their budget. And we're seeing some of that in cities like Los Angeles, a big call to do that in the city of New York and lots of other places. The federal government can Give funds to incentivize states and cities to do public safety differently. And Congress can also set a floor for how the police are allowed to use force, which currently there is tons of permissibility about if you're just looking at the Supreme Court standards from the Constitution. And Congress can also set a floor for police accountability. So when you look at the bill that the Democrats are trying to um, pass in Congress, so first of all, As as far as I can tell, this is the first major piece of policing reform legislation we've seen since the early 1990s, which in itself is just like a huge thing, especially obviously if it passes. And part of what is being considered in this bill are changing the rules that have made it so hard to have any real oversight or accountability of the police. And these are like all of these parts of policy that have kind of attached themselves over the years through union contracts and state law enforcement bills. Rights, So I'm talking about qualified immunity, which makes it super hard to sue the police if they um, hurt you and break the rules in hurting you. Congress could change that standard. I'm talking about the rules for what an internal affairs investigation can do. Like, can the police uh, can you can they make you wait weeks or month even um, before you can ask any questions of an officer who's been accused of misconduct? Congress can change all of those things. And that idea that you could have really national standards that would make oversight of the police much stronger, that's just that would be a huge shift in itself. And it just has seemed pretty unthinkable that Congress would step in until basically like last week.
1: All right. Uh, We've gotten some great questions from you, dear listeners. I want to go to one from Tanuja Yalamanchili, Who asks us, are we optimistic about real lasting change with regard to racism coming out of these protests? Are you guys optimistic about that?
2: It's always dangerous to talk about (laughs) optimism because it's like you're having to imagine some major change. But I feel more optimistic right now about actual policy changes than I have in a long time. And I'm also struck by the symbolism of things like NASCAR saying no more Confederate flag imagery at their races, Amazing. right? Amazing. And all yeah. the businesses and just this sense that, like, white people are getting it in some way that they haven't to this degree. Now, there are lots of ways in which like white people are going to fall down on the job and there's going to be retreat and backtracking because progress is never linear. But there's a mainstream kind of like majority of America quality to sort of thinking like, okay, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And I feel like that's just been surprisingly robust in this way that I wouldn't have expected. Like, we're supposed to be so divided and polarized, and President Trump is doing everything he can to prevent this kind of unity, and we're seeing it anyway.
1: John, actually, I want to talk about that symbolic question. So we have seen many magnificent symbolic acts. I feel like there's been this deck clearing, this moment where everyone's like, you know what, let's take care of all these these insults, these outrages that we live with, the Confederate statues, the statues of slavers, the... Uh, the, the fact that we have cops is still on TV, Gone with the Wind. I actually, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to like spend a lot of time, mental energy thinking about whether Gone with the Wind should be on TV or not, but it, I watched it a few months ago. It's so racist. It was shocking. Well, maybe um, it shouldn't be so on the, TV. It shouldn't be on TV. No, right. It shouldn't be on TV. Uh, Jack Dorsey declaring that Juneteenth would be celebrated as a holiday at Twitter and Square, which I bet becomes a thing that, that spreads because we, God knows we need a holiday commemorating slavery in this country. Um, do you think these... Obviously, if the symbolic acts are the only thing that come out of this, that would be tragic. But do you think the symbolic acts are valuable?
3: Well, that's what I was, we, I was puzzling through last week. What are the symbolic, because what are symbolic acts do? They, they First of all, they, sh- they, they give a hearing to the agony of the country. Uh, and this is, this is an agony of the black community, but it's also the agony of the country because of the poll numbers we talked about earlier. And the protest marches are asking for a response, a symbolic response to that agony from a variety of different kinds of leaders. So in this, symbolism helps with that, but it also puts you on the hook. So when somebody like George W. Bush talks about systemic racism or Mitt Romney uh, marches and says Black Lives Matter, um, they are now on the hook for that. So was that just empty words, Um, you know, a year from now or two years from now when when nothing happens? But again, it requires somebody coming forward and putting major chips on the table and saying, I'm going to sacrifice my, you know, some political capital. I'm going to make some big um, promises here. That um, are so big that I have to back them up or else look foolish. And also this may be in some ways like the response to COVID-19, which is that this is taken out of the hands of some of the politicians. You know, in COVID-19, there was a lot of bucking and and snorting about how um, cumbersome the stay at home. But most orders were. But most Americans stuck with that and sort of took care of their neighbors, the polls overwhelmingly showed. And so despite the efforts, and I think clearly the president's remarks in several instances, and also what he decided not to do, shows that he's not expending a lot of his political capital in, uh, in, a, in showing that he's hearing the agony of the protesters. So he's not going to do much for this movement. But the movement's moving on kind of without him. And there may be a way in which the country and people take this into their own hands, And don't leave it up to some of the leaders.
1: Um, So just before we leave this topic, uh, which we will be discussing on show after show, after show, I hope in months to come uh, it is, you know, obvious we've, we're three white people, three middle-aged upper middle-class white people talking about this. And it's something that we've, we have talked about internally. It's something we, you know, we agonize about Emily. I mean, what's, Is it a problem that the three of us are sitting up here talking about this?
2: So, I mean, it's good that we're talking about this because white people need to talk about this stuff. It is a problem that our show is all white. I don't think we would start this show with three white people now. And yet it's existed for all these 15 years and we're all kind of loath to part with it. So we've sort of done this like small step of having guests often who are people of color. And uh, I think that's helped somewhat. But I think we should be thinking about, you know, whether there's more we need to do. And I haven't really like solved that dilemma in my own head. It's interesting because it the real solution to it involves like really moving over and uh, giving someone else your seat in a serious way. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, So I think we should be talking about it more.
1: Slate Plus members, we so appreciate your support. You allow us to undertake some of the serious journalism that Slate does, or you allow Slate to do that, and you allow us to get the chance to record bonus segments for you and and to do a bit more GabFest for you, which is a great pleasure for us. And we really appreciate you supporting Slate, and Slate, like so many publications, is having a hard time during COVID, during this economic recession, Uh, but it's doing great work covering protests, covering courts, covering the problems with voting and it's had record traffic during this time. But it's it's hard. And so if you are in a position, if you find yourself in a position to support Slate Plus with an annual membership, we would hugely appreciate it. And you can go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus today to join um, and you will get bonus segments. Like the bonus segment you would get today will be the Q&A that we're going to do with our audience at, uh, at the end of the regular session here. On Wednesday, today, when we're recording, the Trump campaign has written a letter to CNN demanding that it apologize for a poll that showed Joe Biden opening up a 14-point lead on Donald Trump nationwide. It was a very funny moment, as we see from John Dickerson's chuckle there. Uh, the Trump campaign uh, wanted to make it seem like CNN was fiddling its numbers. It only made it clear that they were kind of desperately trying to fiddle them themselves. Um we have also had the bizarre spectacle this week of the Trump campaign dropping nearly five hundred thousand dollars to advertise on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC here where I live in washington d c simply so that Trump would see his own ads and feel better. There are no competitive races there's no competitive race for the presidency here in the district Maryland, Virginia, and yet they spend a bunch of money advertising because they wanted Trump to be like soothed and assuaged.
2: Seems like they could just beam that stuff into the White House. Like there should be some special way to get in Speci- on his exactly. TV signal, right?
1: Yeah, just replace the yeah. feed.
3: Yeah, with a... Yeah.
1: <sighs> they, I, wouldn't you... They probably do that. Don't you think they probably do that? They probably do have a way to be like, oh my God, we got we to gotta direct him. We, we gotta Let's get a special interview just beamed right to him.
2: But then he'll be, like, tweeting about something and say he saw it on TV. It'll be only him who saw it on TV. That seems like it, it, wouldn't be, a it would be It would.
1: That would be not even that much crazier than the tweets that he puts out anyway. So put that in your pipe, Emily. Uh, so polling John Dickerson suggests that Joe Biden does have a d- double-digit national lead. But if I were a Democrat, I would not be renting any house in Georgetown yet. Um, but tell us why, John. Why is this the same or different than the kind of lead that Hillary Clinton had on Donald Trump back in 2016?
3: Uh, well, a couple of different things. I mean, um, there are three big issues that the, that are not good for the president. Um, you know, his handling on the COVID pandemic, those numbers have continued to go down. His response to uh, the protests have been, his numbers have been, Awful. And they've been awful inside of two interesting constituencies. One, he continues to do poorly with white suburban women and getting worse. So that's an important part of those suburban voters that he'll need in some states. But there's also some evidence in these polls that um, white non-college voters, women, are leaving him. Um, And whether it's whether it's the response to covid or the protests or the economy, which is not so much necessarily the people are blaming him. They still uh, polls that, that I've seen show people still trusting the president over Biden. But the economy isn't good. So it's not it's not buoying him in the way it might. The big challenge for the president is that he's got two he's facing two things that he has an ability to respond to. Uh, And he has not responded in the way people want to want him to. And that's more than just bad environment. That's that's uh, provides the the pretext for somebody to say, if he didn't do it in this, these two big things that are all about what a president should be able to respond to, why would he be sufficient in office if you give him four more years?
2: I have also I have two super wonky polling questions for John, but you can go ahead and then I will. I'm very proud that I. Paid attention enough no, to be able to ask these questions. The fact that
1: you have done done all that homework, Emily. Let's, yeah, let's show your work. I'm Move terrified. Yeah.
2: Okay. So I read this morning about something that I believe is called partisan non-response. Is that right? Anyway, whatever it's called, the idea is that at a time when your candidate is not making you proud. You just don't answer the poll. And so it. you're going to come back to your your guy once he seems a little spiffier. But in the meantime, it looks like his support is softer than it is. Is this a real thing that is happening right now in the polls, John Dickerson?
3: Uh, well, I don't want to express um, certainty about anything, but it is a real thing. The question is, how big is it? Because that's A, that's that's hard to know. And then the second thing is, Um, Partisan non-response, a little bit, is, um, I mean, it's, I I think it's a real thing, but it's also used to monkey with results. So, um, things are bad, and you call CNN and say your results are funny, and then you use the partisan non-response to say, well, they're bad for the moment, but everybody will come out of the woodwork on Election Day. Now added to all of that is that a lot of people um, were surprised by the election results in 2016 and thought, oh, well, Trump voters weren't answering pollsters or we misidentified the shape of the electorate. So th- there's some, not evidence, but there's a reason to be highly nervous about where any poll is, even if in this case you have good you know, reasons for the polls to be moving, which is to say current events.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to note a couple of points there. One is the reasons where were different. I remember when the Access Hollywood tape came out, and we were we were doing a show, and we I I remember I was speculating about oh could we have an election where Hillary Clinton wins forty eight states or something, and we talked about that seriously because I'm an idiot, and I don't want. To fall into that same trap now of assuming like, oh, there's a there's this dynamic which is really harming Trump. And therefore, Biden is almost certainly going to benefit because I think it is just so early. And this, there are, it is true that the there are fewer undecided voters than there were back in 2016. It is true that Biden's negatives are not nearly the, the same as Hillary Clinton's negatives. Um but at the same time, the, 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 this is not a nation, nation, nationwide election. This is a state-by-state state election, and the state-by-state state polls do not look as good for Biden as the national polls do. And, and I think also, and actually this is the point I really want to get to, that the most important polls that took place this week took place in Georgia, where you had a, a, an election conducted that was a travesty because there were the machines that didn't work, there weren't enough poll workers, there were polling stations that had been closed all across the state disproportionately affecting minority communities. And I think when I think about what could go wrong, if I were Joe Biden, I was thinking about what could go wrong in this election. It might be that I had a vast support popularly nationwide, but that at a state-by-state level, whether because of Russian monkeying, because of a resurgence of pandemic, because of uh, efforts by Republicans to lower turnout, that state-by-state results could be really screwed because of this tampering with, election, with voting dynamics. I mean, I'm interested in your thought on that, Emily, because I know you've done so much work about
2: it. I mean, absolutely, that is something to worry about. And when you think about Georgia, a state that has a real history of struggle over the franchise, I mean— dating back decades, but also more recently, Stacey Abrams, before she ran for governor, registered lots of especially African-American voters. But there also have been these purges from the voting rolls, first by the former Secretary of State, who's now the governor, and now by the current Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who was busy kind of apologizing and scrambling over those incredibly, like tragically long lines yesterday. But as far as I could tell, just didn't have a good explanation for them. And I think the notion that if you make it really hard for certain people to vote, that can skew the results, like that's still a big temptation. And and to our own desperate misfortune, we have one party that seems much more interested in that approach as opposed to convincing more people to vote for you. You make it harder for the people who aren't going to agree with you to vote. As long as we have that kind of incentive um, for the Republican Party, I think those are very real fears for november
3: so going to a few demographics trump trails biden by 25 points among women that's um worse than than trump's 14 point deficit four years ago and then among older voters 65 and older he's up biden's up by seven points clinton lost by five so those are two really important constituencies and that gives you some sense of the of the movement within those or not the movement because he's been up with women for a long time, but um, the amplitude of his, of his lead at the moment.
1: I want to ask you, John, about Biden, because we have, there was a study that came out today and I actually, I can't even remember where, where the study was, but the suggestion is that Democrats and the Biden campaign need to stop running so many, so much anti-Trump material. Voters know about Trump. They know who he is. He gets plenty of attention, like running more ads, smacking him doesn't really help you, but they don't really have a good sense about who Joe Biden is. They haven't, he has not defined himself adequately. He has not shown the warmth and empathy, or maybe he's shown it, he just hasn't spread the word of his warmth and empathy nearly enough. Do you think there's anything to that?
3: Well, ultimately, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, um, he hasn't had a lot of opportunities though. And now with, with after, you know, in the last two weeks he has, and I think he has, um It's been an opportunity for him to step forward and be in news coverage um, in a way that is a direct opposition to the way the president is acting. And so I think in that instance, he's presenting the sort of the case for Joe Biden. Um, But ultimately, he has to. And the fact is, though, that he has an issue set here that, you know, he doesn't have to go hunting for issues. Mostly the burden is going to be on the president to hunt for other issues. And, you know, one of the challenges for all of us voters and those of us who cover the election is to keep the main thing, the main thing. I mean, you have three huge challenges to the country and the president can play a role in all three of them. And basically everything else is off to the side. And whether it's fighting with CNN about poll numbers or, um, you know, the president um, making up stories about people, totally out of whole cloth, that's all kind of off to the side. And that's a challenge for Vice President Biden, as well, which is not to take the bait.
2: I mean, it seemed to me what was interesting about that study is that President Trump is just such a fixed presence in Americans lives, like almost all of us have made up our minds a long time ago, what we think of him. Whereas Biden, even though he's been in the public eye for many years, it's still a less kind of cemented View, And so I think Matt Iglesias was writing about this for Vox. And one of the things I think he was arguing, uh, Matt, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, is that Trump is going to try to obviously affect Americans view of Joe Biden with presumably lots of negative advertising between now and Election Day. And Biden needs to get voters to focus on his attributes as he wants them to see him. And um, it seems like there's a parallel to this from Doug Jones's Senate campaign in Alabama where there was lots of negative advertising to be done about his opponent Roy Moore but apparently the most effective ad that Jones ran was this like kind of bland advertisement about education and how he believed in a good education for everybody
1: you have to give people validating proof you have to give them enough to hold on to right like it's not it's never enough to pull somebody else down you just have to give somebody an excuse for why they're going to vote for you. I mean, there's this great example in the Ann Applebaum piece about Republicans being complicit in in Trump's presidency. And she cites this Republican who, by inclination, by training, by career, by profession, should be outraged by Trump and disgusted by him and have, have completely left him, but has stayed. And when Anne asked this person about Trump, he, the, the person said, oh, well, it's the Uyghur issue. Uh, Trump is good on the Uyghur issue and because you always need something to cling to, some specific thing that the person you are attached to is representing. And so I do think that Biden needs that thing that people can say, OK, yes, it's not just that I hate Trump. It's that Biden will do X, and that that is solace for me, especially for people who are wavering. Emily, I want um, – there's a question that's come from a viewer uh, – excuse me, a viewer. Well, a viewer, yes, a viewer, a viewer and a listener.
2: <laughs> Today, um, a viewer.
1: Which has come up um, – over and over again, and which I know we've touched on before, but is do you think there's any risk that if President Trump loses this election, that he contests it and refuses to leave office?
2: So lots of people are thinking hard about this. I personally would prefer that we start by putting a lot of energy into thinking about making sure we have a free and fair election. I think, you know, President Trump has signaled that he's kind of priming the pump for sowing distrust about the election in a way that could, in some nightmare scenario, justify him not leaving office. Obviously, if the election is a blowout or even just not close in key states, it's going to be much harder for him to do that and much harder for Republicans in government to go along with that vision, right? You can imagine for them, if Trump loses and it's decisive, there's going to be some sense of relief whether or not they admit it. And they're going to move away from him. If it's really close and he can make it seem like he was cheated, which he's already, you know, trying to set up, I think that there's a danger. It's all of these questions are contingent on not just American law, but also American norms and history. And Trump has shown that he isn't very interested in these sort of key attributes. And I feel like this is sort of the perfect segue to John's book, because one of the things you talk about, John, is how crucial it is that the chief executive see himself or herself as a steward of American democracy and our constitutional structure. And this question of the peaceful transition of power if you lose an election, that's like the ultimate example.
1: All right, John, actually, why don't you close this segment by talking about that and then we'll Flow into the next one.
3: Well, uh, that was elegantly done, Emily. I just I don't even want to say anything. I just want to s- bask in the glow of that beautiful transition. I mean, that's one of the things that um, that is part of the job, and that was stitched into the job. You know, obviously, Washington said, "I tread on." I walk on untrodden ground, he was setting a precedent for the person who came after. And the person who came after would set a precedent for the person after them. But also, they would be stewards of what came before. And also, when they were designing the office, they thought that that basically the president would be a steward, not just of the prerogatives of his branch, but that also the entire balance of power system. And obviously, the peaceful transition of power which was tested very early on in the election of 1800 is central to the entire system. And so that if, as you said, if there's one stewardship obligation, it's to uh, protect that.
1: This episode of the Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will Love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos, so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother in an Auraframe, and I hope she Hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. Gapfest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get thirty dollars off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. We came and rammed into our left wing.
1: With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
3: The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the
1: ball? You cannot ignore China.
3: From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow
1: War,
0: China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right. For 15 happy years, Emily and I have had the joy of watching John Dickerson think out loud about American politics and history. The subject that has most animated him during that time is the American presidency. It is. It speaks to all kinds of Dickersonian obsessions, how to do things well, how to optimize things, the difference between running for something and doing something. And we and those of you who listen to the show have had the chance to hear him think about this for years and now comes the full efflorescence of that thinking. I think of this book as the child of John Dickerson and Dwight D Eisenhower. Like it's that's what it is. If John and Dwight D Eisenhower had gotten together, this was the this would be the baby they'd had the book is called the hardest job in the world, the American presidency. It comes out next Tuesday. So we want you to please go pre-order this book, Re- pre order it at your local bookseller. We are dropping a link to buy it in the feeds that you're watching. Those of you who are watching right now, John, congratulations. The book is wonderful. You've done it. Thank you. Incredible job writing it while also holding down five or six other full-time yeah. jobs. Um, <laughs> I would also note, I was just having this thought as I was looking at the cover, preparing to pick it up, how amazing it is that Lyndon Johnson is so identifiable just by the shape of the top of his head. Yeah. You just look at the shape of the top of his head, and you're like, oh, that's LBJ. Yeah. Nailed it.
3: Yeah, that picture, um, which um, we, oh, look at that. Faith is on the ball. Viewers, that is... (laughs) That genius you saw, as I said, the word picture is uh, all glory. It goes to Faith Smith for so quickly getting that picture up there. She's the executive producer of Slate Live. So what's happening in that picture is it's Lyndon Johnson, as, uh, as you said, David. And that is, it's 1968. And the tape recorder you see, which is actually isn't on the cover of the book, is a tape recording from his son-in-law, um, Charles Robb, Chuck Robb, who was the governor and senator from Virginia, sending back reports from uh, Vietnam of what was really going on, which... Uh, you know, Johnson wanted to kind of, he thought he wasn't getting the straight story from his military officials. And so, uh, Chuck Robb would send back reports and that's him listening to it after a very long day in 1968, which is a brutal, um, a brutal year for the president, uh, for president Johnson. Um, and it's unclear whether he's just trying to listen to, um, uh, what's on the tape or whether he's really in deep anguish. But, um, anyway, it's a, it's a pretty, uh, it's a great picture. Um, and, um a lot of people have noted you know have uh, have have been drawn to it there's a there's a great book by the way about 1968 from kyle longley um which also has that picture on its cover
1: i'm gonna take the first question here emily if that's all right the obvious fact of donald trump being president is in some ways a rebuke to a lot of what you uh have studied what you've looked at in this book you one doesn't need to be a a huge critic of Trump to note that he's not very good at some of the things that you think are most valuable in the president hiring. Well, being honest, focusing on the long haul yet. He is in fact, the president and his presidency has disrupted the presidency massively, made it very hard to think about anything else other than him in some ways. So why do you think you you've written this book during the the Trump presidency? You undertook it during the Trump presidency. Why is it important to take the long view about the presidency even at a time it's been totally upended.
3: Well, you're right, he's both a president that has to be looked at, evaluated for what he does right, what he does wrong, but he's also kind of a measuring tool to look at the office because he has revealed all of these cracks in the office and made people go back to first principles about why we have these things. And I started this project, actually I started it when you uh, had us all go write Fresca projects at Slate, one of mine was about the presidency. The book was an outgrowth of that. And basically the idea was to look at things like, what does it mean to be presidential? Is it good or bad when a president lies? And in what inst- and this was all started before Donald Trump was president. What does it mean when we say the buck stops here? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is there some instances in which it makes the president into um, uh, what Brendan Nye has said, the sort of the um, Green Lanternism of the presidency, where sheerly through the force of the president's will, he can solve the thorniest problems? Is that the wrong way to look at the office? All of these questions, very hard to do in the age of Donald Trump because he is basically at, at at conflict with most of the traditions of the office. On the other hand, he's been very successful for his party. He's increased defense spending. We've talked about judges. He's been very solid on abortion. Um, he's cut taxes. He's cut regulations. And he's, as Newt Gingrich said, he may not be a conservative, but he's the best anti-liberal I know. And so a lot of people like that about him. So what does that mean? Is that a, is, where's the conflict between the political, every president's gotta be political, he's gotta run the country and run a party, there's always been a tension there. Has he overshot that tension? Or is he within the normal bounds? And it was very hard through, when I first wrote about this for The Atlantic and then in the book, to kind of get around Donald Trump for a moment to look at the office, but you have to look at the office because one of the things we talk about this on, on this show all the time is the standards. What are the standards of the presidency? And what do we measure them against? If you're always changing the measuring stick, then then the office just floats in the air. And the office was built on a very strict standard. You know, the, the scene which is in there, which I won't go into, but of writing the, the rules for the office basically while George Washington stands at the front of the room, it was built with a set of standards in place. And those have shifted for good reason over time. But there have to be some standards. So how do we get them? Where do they come from? And, and, and how do we maintain them?
2: John, I wanna ask you about a couple of pictures that are on page 80. Let's see if Faith can find them. And they show Lyndon Johnson looking out the window as his plane flies over the ninth ward in Louisiana after Hurricane Betsy. Nobody's expecting him to get out of that plane. Then you have George Bush flying over the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, same place, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And you point out that at this point, the expectation that a president would care about and attend to a local emergency was so great that Bush's decision not to get out of the plane ends up defining his presidency. What do you make of that transition? and its relevance to coronavirus. I mean, we're having a national rather than local emergency, but the expectation that the president is going to really like take the helm, take the reins, uh, be there for us as this, Green Lantern figure, but also as the national comforter and organizer and chief cheerleader for a federal strategy that's well established. But we've seen the Trump administration really deviate from that standard, as you were talking about standards before.
3: Right. So many things that are that are part of that. There's the presidential disaster response, which is one thing. Then there is the comforter in chief and the kind of pastoral part of the job. Both of those things are new. We remember the shooting from the bell tower at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, when that took place in Texas, Lyndon Johnson, who was president, didn't even respond. When there was the massive shooting in California during the Reagan uh, presidency at the McDonald's, he didn't respond. We now expect presidents to respond to mass shootings. When Eisenhower was president, I went back and looked at all the hurricanes that hit the East Coast. And you know what you don't see in the paper on, that's got the front page? The, you know, Hurricane Irma's coming. There's no coverage of the, of the president. To the extent there was coverage, it was about how Eisenhower was off, why, enjoying some golf and some fishing. And then the vice president said, at that time Nixon, we get a little more sleep around Washington, he says to this poor reporter who has to add him. He has an ungodly habit of getting up early. So there's a storm barreling down on the East Coast. The president's off on vacation and the vice president's joking about how they can all sleep later. Now, of course, you'd have to be, the president would have to be over at FEMA wearing a windbreaker with the presidential seal. Where did that come from? Johnson. Johnson goes down. And what happens is all the other politicians notice how strong the coverage is of his trip there. He is also personally moved. He goes into a high school there in the ninth ward. No lights are on. There are people in the basement, all of them black, eating beans and cold carrots off of paper plates and he says i'm your president i'm here to help you comes back to washington gets on the phone you know cuts through the red tape the headlines of the papers are all oh, johnson does this johnson does that it is the green lantern presidency it makes him look like he has moved the world to help louisiana and then after that you start to have this expectation of a presidential response it doesn't happen immediately but it starts to and then fema gets created and then we basically have this now expectation that the president that the federal government will respond but Eisenhower's argument was, if we respond as a federal government, it will sap the people's cheerful, his, uh, cheerful spirit of giving, he said. Kennedy believed that too, that basically it was the job of local responders to take care of these emergencies, including civil defense forces and civic organizations and the Red Cross to take care of people. So those are two big new jobs the president has, which is one of the things I write about is how overloaded the job has become.
1: John, one of the frames of the book that you introduce early on is is Eisenhower's urgent important matrix. So tell us about that and how is it a way to think about the presidency? And also, did Eisenhower really come up with it? It's such an amazing little thing.
3: So, uh, is Eisenhower, it really him? Well, it's it was appropriated from a phrase of his, which is don't let the urgent crowd out the important. And the reason I became sort of, I became- I'm still
2: working on that.
3: Yeah, we all are, right? Um, And what David's talking about, the Eisenhower Matrix, for anybody who hasn't seen it, the the X and Y axes are basically important or urgent. And there are a lot of things in our life that are urgent, but not important. Most fights on Twitter. Urgent because they're happening now, but they're not that important. Going to visit the doctor in your annual checkup, that's not urgent. You don't have to do it today, but it's quite important. So the presidency sorts all those things like that. I became obsessed with Eisenhower because he had all, he thought really, really delicately about all the different roles of being a leader. He thought about the different kinds of leadership you needed. Eisenhower, uh, Truman joked that, you know, when Ike comes to be president, he's going to order people around and they're not going to do anything, thinking that he would be at a deficit because he'd had his military career. But Eisenhower, when you look at his writings, totally knew the difference between leadership in different kinds of contexts and who was good and won, and he writes about, Patton was great if you want to go destroy the battlefield, but he couldn't lead in a larger context. So Eisenhower thought about all these things. The the point about urgent and important is a president is beset by a constant barrage of urgent. There's real urgent, then there's what his enemies say is urgent, then there's what his aides say is urgent, then there's what his allies say is urgent, and then there's what those of us on TV who talk about the, president, the presidency thinks is urgent. Well, that's He can't, no human being can handle all of that. So how a president sorts priorities is a key aspect of the job. In a campaign, a president has unlimited time and everything's taken care of in in that urgent uh, urgent and important quadrant of the matrix. And he promises to do this and do that and do the other thing. And what that fundamentally offends is the very serious part of the job that's about priority setting. And it's brutal, the priorities a president has to set and the stuff he has to offload to his staff, which led me into a long session in the book about team building, which is crucial to the job. We think of it as a singular job. It's really a job. It's you're an organizational head. And we never test that in campaigns about a president's or candidate's capacity for building an organization. I'm
2: going to steal one of our listeners, perhaps viewers, Ben Theranyi, Hope I'm saying your name correctly. Are we that voting for president is voting for a policy platform that's really up to Congress? And I'm going to now have an excuse. One of my favorite facts in this book that I had no idea of is that when William Henry Harrison, I think that's his whole name, ran for president in 1840, he said he wasn't going to talk about policy because that was up to Congress. Now we have enormous expectations that presidential candidates will talk about policy, but is it still really up to Congress?
1: But it's not. But wait, can, can I gain I, say I mean, my whole? I know we're supposed to be interviewing John, but that seems no, to no, me no, go,
3: go, go. That
1: question seems like that question seems like really off base. We we what we've seen in the past generation is this vast expansion of executive authority and the president driving the congressional agenda, not the other way around, and the president grabbing for himself all kinds of powers that previously existed with courts or with uh, bureaucracies or with congress or with independent agencies or with states and the ability of the president to shape the policy agenda seems like profoundly huge these days much more so than it used to
3: right but that's what she's
1: saying but john
3: well no but that's what that's what emily's saying she's saying oh my gosh it's gotten so out of whack um one of my favorite passages. No, but that's not what the
1: question that's not what the question was saying. The question was saying the policy is up to Congress. Well anyway, no, anyway, go that's, ahead. Well Sorry. it
3: was too there was they were I was trying to kind of weave it all together. Um, there's a lot of this in the book. Um, so you would hope, and one of the things that that if you wanna one of the problems, the reason the president's presidency is so hard is so much stuff has gotten put on the presidential to-do list. We just talked about the response to disasters. I talked to a lot of former FEMA directors and they say, you know, you should be paying a lot of attention to governors, mayors, to whether you're going to rebuild houses on land that's going to get devastated by hurricanes. Maybe you don't build them so close, all of which are big questions that have nothing to do with the president. That isn't to say that a president doesn't have a role, certainly a pastoral role. Have we gotten, have we missed, do we think about things in an incorrect fashion? And that's true with respect to the relationship with Congress. You know, when when Wilson wrote about the relationship between the president and Congress, this is before he was in the presidency and changed his mind because reality was slightly different. There is this great um, description of the way senators treated the president. He said that senior senators treat the president almost as an ephemeral phenomenon because they have served longer than presidents and their experience of affairs is much mellower than the presidents can be at policies with steadier vision than the presidents. The, so, they they made the case, actually, that Mitch McConnell makes in his book because he's talking about Barack Obama, but that Congress is the right place for most activity because you have lots of different voices. You have deliberation. You have people with a met with expertise, people with, a, a as Wilson said, a mellower view, a longer view. Now, that's in the kind of idealized form of Congress, which some people would argue maybe we've never had. What we have now essentially is presidents who dictate what their parties or do or don't do in Congress. And Congress, members of Congress don't bring things up if they think it's going to hurt the president. I go into it at some length, as you all know, in the book about why this is a matter of the partisan shift we've had in the country. In the past, as a member of a party, you could, you could confront your president. You could criticize the president of your party because your election was not tied so tightly to their fortunes. Now, you're, you're, you're basically, your fortunes are tied to the president's. But when I interview senators of the president's party and also the opposition, they complain constantly about just not being able to vote on issues because the because the the terrain is basically totally determined by the white house and they don't get to come to washington to do what they think their job is which is to debate and then vote and be held accountable for their votes
1: john this is a really deeply richly researched book and i want to know who is your now your sneaky favorite president who surprised you in your research and made you think wow, this this president was really underrated or this president really had something going. You cannot say Eisenhower because you've no, already talked not? about him too much.
3: why not? Because it's totally...
1: Because you've already talked about him too much. I know. Eisenhower. Um, we give you Eisenhower.
2: Um, you just stole his answer. And it's the beginning of his book tour.
3: Um, I don't know about that.
1: Well, tactic. Eisenhower too because it's just... Okay, a you can have Eisenhower. Fine. Well,
3: it's also because of that one newspaper, which people will have to read the book to find out, but that one newspaper has... It's an account of some stuff going on um, in 1956, and it sort of has all of these things that when you read it base, and look at our contemporary politics, you think, oh my God, you know, we have come such a distance from this period of time, and the distance we've traveled has not necessarily been great. You know, the problem is you, you, when you've got Lincoln and FDR um, who had big flaws, you um, hard to get around them, but they're not a surprise. One of the things I argue in the book is we don't give a president a chance to succeed because we basically hamstring them. Uh, we don't give them a long enough time to, to do a transition. They they come in to be the head of a $4 trillion operation, and they've got about two months. Now, some presidents have done worse than others. Carter started his transition work before he even had the Democratic nomination because he was thinking about how am I going to govern? Because governing is difficult, I can't just start it you know right away and try to build a team and do all that stuff I write about. And yet it didn't work in part because of the way he organized his team and because of the conflict between all the people who won him the campaign wanted to be there versus the team he was building and that that conflict ended up, you know, eating itself. But he was doing a lot of the things that I thought were quite innovative and interesting. They didn't pay off, but they they represented that idea of taking the job seriously as the job exists, not as we think of it as a sort of political theatrical um, position.
2: So one of my favorite parts of this book is a quote from Frederick Douglass, which might be super famous, but I had never heard it before. He is talking about Abraham Lincoln, and Douglass says, quote, viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent but measuring him by the sentiment of his country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult. He was swift, zealous, radical, and determined." And you say that this vision of the presidency recognized both the necessarily high standard of the office and the human limitations of circumstances. Lincoln stands for us, obviously, as this figure who's transcended time and history, and we mostly emphasize the positive attributes that Douglas was talking about. But what does this kind of dual description of Lincoln tell us about both what presidents are stuck with, and also how they can figure out how to be transformative figures despite all of the baggage kind of clinging to them, all the reasons not to be visionary.
3: I love that quote so much. It's at the beginning of David Blight's book on Douglas, Pulitzer Prize winning book on Douglas. And it's a beautifully sketched scene of Douglas talking about Lincoln with whom he had real massive fights and who he excoriated, but then who he also ultimately had a a favorable view of. But it's at a dedication of a, a statue. He is basically explaining to the audience why Lincoln is not his hero, um, and not the hero of enslaved peoples. And so it's beautifully done, and everybody should go read what David wrote because it, it just it's, comes alive in that passage. But for me, what it was about is what I'm trying to figure out in this book, which is most of the attributes we talk about with a the president, there are gray areas and there are complexities. And often that's used to basically weasel your way out of holding a president to account. No, that's not that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to figure out when we are critical of a president, the precise reason to be critical and to think of it in a context. And I think that was what Frederick Douglass, who could, you know, pound someone into dust with the power of his brain and and rhetoric, was basically saying, you must look at him in these two different ways. And embedded in that is what you said, Emily, which is that he was, Lincoln was a failed moral guide for a portion of his, he was not the same moral Uh, Lincoln at the end that he was at the beginning. And that's true uh, of FDR. It's true of any of us. And we don't allow much of that in politics anymore. And so I just felt like if I always kept what um, Douglas said about Lincoln in my head, it would always remind me to keep thinking about the different ways in which you have to look at any president or or any human for that matter, but any president to be fair to them, which ultimately may lead you to a more condemning assessment of their behavior in presidency, but you have to, you have to kind of keep these different contexts in mind as you're, as you're um, evaluating them. And um, so I, yeah, I love that quote too.
1: John's book, the hardest job in the world, the American presidency. It comes out next Tuesday. Please pre-order it from your local bookstore. John, congratulations. May it sell a million copies. Thank you.
2: Amazing achievement. We are so excited for you and the well, world. And also
3: to you guys, to you, and all, to all the people out there listening. As you said, David, this was born basically in all of these rambles, which I feel like I accurately represented here tonight um, over 15 years. And so it, it was basically created in real time with you two, to whom I'm eternally grateful, but also to everybody out there who's listening and who's pre-ordering uh,
1: or getting their second copy. Let us go to cocktail chatter. Emily, listeners want to know what you've been drinking and they also want to know what your chatter is. What is your chatter and what are you drinking?
2: What have I been drinking? I have been drinking Lagunitas IPA from Petaluma, California and Chicago, Lagunitas. Illinois. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't really specially pick it, but it was in the fridge. It's good. I like it. Okay. <laughs> That's the actual drinking portion of my chatter. I am just so interested in in the continuing developments in the crazy case of criminal prosecution sort of against Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security advisor. So the last time you may or may not have been paying attention to this, the Justice Department came into court and said, you know what, Michael Flynn, he pled guilty twice, but we don't actually think that we wanna prosecute him anymore for this crime because we think that his admissions were not actually material. Uh, his admissions of lying to the FBI that the lies were not actually material to the investigation that we were developing. This was incredibly jaw-dropping in itself because the Justice Department never changes the position after a guilty plea and basically just, like, decides, oh, we don't want this case anymore. But that was what was happening. So the judge, Emmett Sullivan, appointed a retired judge, John Gleason, who was a former mafia prosecutor, so someone with his own reputation, to argue against the Justice Department's decision to drop this case. And Gleason has (laughs) uh, dropped a 73-page brief that is just a total attack on the government's position. I mean, it really has this kind of crazy language in it. I don't know if I've... Anyway, it's really amazing. I mean, he says that this fact surrounding... The government's decision making constitute, quote, clear evidence of gross prosecutorial abuse. They reveal an unconvincing effort to disguise as legitimate a decision to dismiss that is based solely on the fact that Flynn is a political ally of President Trump. I don't know whether this is going to be actually bad for Michael Flynn or not, because the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has basically started to intervene in this case and could suggest that Judge Sullivan just has to drop these charges without ever ruling on Gleason's motion. At least if that happens now, we're going to have on the record this just really striking statement about how irregular and kind of pretend the government's posture is here. So this remains just an amazing case to watch.
1: John Dickerson, I don't know if you've been drinking. If you've been drinking, listeners want to know what you're drinking, and what are you going to chat about?
3: Um, I've been drinking an Asahi uh, beer. F- a friend of the show asked what was the one thing that I um, could didn't get into the book that I that I miss. And um, it was a bit of a tangent, because I became, as <laughs> Emily knows because she read a previous version of it, I, I became un- obsessed with the, the Constitutional Convention, um, uh, and I pulled that back. And one of the things I took out was in the middle of the Constitutional Convention. So they nailed the windows shut because um, they didn't want any leaks from these this four hot, sweaty months in Philadelphia. You can imagine what it's like to be in pantaloons and a powdered wig with the windows nailed shut and a lot of hot air. It's a lot like that's being in the my point basement of the story. Right now. Yeah, I bet. Exactly. I know it's a little warm up here, too. But anyway, in the middle of it, a rumor gets put in a um, in a in a Connecticut pamphlet. There is a rumor that the second son of George the third has been picked by the, the constitutional by the founders to be crowned king over the continent. So, obviously, they're meeting to undo the Articles of Confederation. There's a lot of suspicion. You know, of course, Patrick Henry of Virginia says he's not going to go to Pennsylvania because he smells the rat of a— or he smelled rat in—I smell a rat in Philadelphia tending towards monarchy. So there are all these rumors that this is what they're up to, picking a king. Well, one of them pops into the paper, and who is dispatched as the Sherlock Holmes figure to go figure it out? Alexander Hamilton who writes to a pal of his um, who is in, uh, I guess he's in Connecticut. Um, anyway, he, um, and again, they were so secretive that, that, that Washington didn't even write about the, the, um, the events of what happened in the Constitutional Convention in his journal. Madison took notes and they were published after he died, so that's why we know how, how things happened. Anyway, the point is, ultimately, uh, Hamilton writes to his friend and, and says, Um, Help me figure out who this is because I think it's been fabricated to excite jealousy against the convention. He says, be so good as to attend to this inquiry somewhat particularly as I have different reasons of some moment for setting it afoot. So anyway, he was doing his best um, Sherlock Holmes impression, but it led to the one press release from, I think it's the one, let's call it the one, press release from the Constitutional Convention. Um, And that press release said... Uh, August 22nd though we cannot affirmatively tell you what we are doing we can negatively tell you what we are not doing we never once thought <laughs> of a king That's great. And they know I don't Excellent. Yeah.
1: I want to so, I want to stand up go. for the word a foot which is a Sherlock Holmes word but again it appears to have been an actual word. That's a great word that has fallen out of fashion. The game is a foot. Yeah. A foot is just exciting. Uh my chatter so I'm drinking a a an apple cider a hard cider from a company here in Washington, D.C.
2: Ooh, good local choice. I'm, well, win. I'm drinking
1: because there was no beer.
2: I feel bad I didn't do that.
1: There's no beer in the house. I would much rather be having a beer, but it was a very good we cider. We should
2: trade. I like apple hard apple cider.
1: Uh, we should trade. I love Lagunitas. That's a great IPA. I want to chatter about uh, a very funny couple of stories that Washington Post and the New York Times glommed onto both today at the same time. And I would my headline for the story would be, I did not see the tweet (laughs) and both the post and the times jeer quite wonderfully at Republican legislators, mostly a few Democrats who pretend they have not seen the president's latest tweet. This is in context of the president's absolutely outrageous Antifa accusation made against that Buffalo protester who was abused and, and rendered uh, unconscious by the, the cops there for no reason. This implausible deniability that, that, Republican legislators have come up with is so funny, but it allows them to duck questions about the president's tweeting, about his insults, to avoid criticizing him. To They don't have to risk his wrath by saying something. And there's this great phenomenon, which I didn't even know about, which is that reporters now carry around copies of the president's tweets so that if someone says, I haven't seen it, they can show it to them. And but But Republican legislators will not it's, it's not, not working, working, though. It's, not it's working. still, yeah. even though
2: they're yeah. short because yeah. they're tweets, they still figure yeah. out ways they not to respond. They refuse to look at them.
1: The, the, my favorite response, well, Ken Cuccinelli said he was uh, reading regulation material, so he didn't have time to look at the tweets. And, but my favorite one um, is from Bob Corker, then Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, who said he didn't see a tweet. And he told the reporter, I don't know that I want you to show it to me. I can't respond if I don't know anything about it. So it's a willful ignorance that they are pursuing so that they don't have to respond to the president's tweets. And maybe all would would that we could all live in a world where we didn't have to respond to the president's tweets. But we do. Listeners, you have sent us great chatters. You sent us great chatters this week, as in so many weeks. And in fact, you sent us a chatter. Uh, the listener chatter this week was a chatter I was going to do myself. And you tweeted them to us at Slate Gabfest. Please keep them coming. By tweeting to us at like Gabfest with something you want to talk about at your cocktail party, and this one comes from John, oh Josh Delaney, excuse me at at JD Delaney, and also from at Alchemist's Cave, who I think sent this to us the original story back to us uh, in 2018. I don't remember if we did it as listener chatter back in 2018, and it's about the uh, Forest Fen treasure. Did you guys follow this? This is a treasure. There's a, a rich guy hid. Two million dollars in treasure in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains. Then wrote a mysterious, not very good poem about where you could find it, and he gave a few clues, oh, like the clues that were it was ab- over five thousand feet, that it was in a place that n- that an eighty year old like him could get to, uh, and thousands of people went searching for this treasure. Thousands upon thousands of people searched for this treasure. Two people at least died in the search for this treasure, oh, and now that's not this. Good. No, not good. This week uh, somebody found Forrest Fenn's treasure. But uh I thought it was a great thing. I thought it was really it it really inspired the imagination of people. People had a lot of fun with it. I mean, the people who died obviously did not have a lot of fun with it. But it, they have this person has now found a, a chest filled with gold nuggets and sapphires and pre-Columbian artifacts. And Oh,
2: cool treasure, not even just like some
1: Not even just or like Yeah, not even not even Bitcoin. Not even a a Bitcoin. Check. <laughs> it's actual it's actual treasure. There was this period in the a few years ago where, where the police chief in in uh, Santa Fe, where he lived, uh, or the state police in New Mexico, asked him to call off the search because too many people were getting hurt. But he didn't call it off, and now it's been found. So, huzzah to you, whoever it is, the anonymous person who has found, Forrest Fenn's treasure. Thank you for listening to this live GabFest with us. If you enjoy the GabFest, please subscribe to the show, and you'll get new episodes the second they're published we are produced by jocelyn frank thank you joss you did such a great job with all the very many logistics of this our researchers bridget dunlap faith smith and brit pulley organized this live show for us and wow you pulled it off it's all technically went so smoothly i had no we had no problems i hope you listeners had no problems too
2: we're amazed by your proficiency yes. since some of us lack it thank you
1: we are amazed we are amazed Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily and John, I'm David Flotz. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? For Slate Plus today, we're going to do a Q&A segment with the cues that you, our live stream audience, have sent in to us. So... Uh, hey, can I get a drink real quick? Yeah, go get yeah? a drink.
2: David and I will answer a question while you get you want a to drink.
1: Do you want to pick a question?
2: Um, David, from John Forsyth, what issue do you think will become the cornerstone of this election? And John gives a few choices. Economy, civil rights, law enforcement, Biden, Russia.
1: Well, I think if Trump is uh, very, very lucky, it will be the economy. And he'll run on the economy and he'll run on some version of the economy bouncing back. My own uh, terrible political radar tells me that, that the house and Senate will pass a second stimulus package, a very, very big stimulus package that will come out in late summer and will be starting to hit people in the early fall. And so whatever, and the, and the unemployment numbers are going to improve because they couldn't, they have to improve. They just couldn't get any worse than they've been. And people will get back to work. And the president will run on this sort of resurging economy, which will have been funded by righteous federal government action and just a natural bounce back from the pandemic. If he's lucky, that is how he's going to run. I don't see Biden and Russia being an issue. I don't see impeachment being an issue. I think, Trump, I think the issues could be Trump and his corruption and his incompetence, and especially if the pandemic resurges, and it could be civil rights could be a huge issue, especially if if the momentum of the protest carries forward. But um, if I were Democrats, I would I would worry that, that a resurging economy, a kind of an economy that's getting to bounce back slightly from this dismal state it's in will benefit Trump. What about you guys?
2: It's so hard to look ahead, isn't it? I mean, right now it just feels like criminal justice and civil rights are at the forefront and, and the nation's divisions on those questions are gonna be so key. I also feel like coronavirus is either going to simmer or come roaring back in some way that is just like kind of really spotlight competence as this huge presidential question. Um, but yeah, I guess I kind of think that the state of the economy, like you said, is Trump's only if there's some recovery going on, even if it's a false one short term and kind of pumped up that that. Is um, that's just so pressing for a, for for people, and that that w- could become the thing that people focus on in the longer term, um, even though it's just so affected and damaged by
1: coronavirus. This is a question for each of us from Adam Bassi Q Basique, perhaps.
2: I think that Q is the question, and it's Adam Bassi. That's oh, it.
1: <laughs> Adam Bassi! <laughs> of course, it is. Adam Bassi. Period. Q, question, when was the first time that each of you realized that racism was a thing? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash to become a member today.